Endless Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History podcast. This is part two of our episode covering the 1902 Tour of England. Part one was released last week and covers the first three tests of the five test series. We resume with the Australians ahead in the series 1-0. The five matches between the third and fourth tests provided few challenges for the Australians, winning two of them whilst rain cost them the chance of victory from good positions in the other three. The match against Gloucestershire was a highlight, with centuries from Hill, Noble and Hopkins, as well as the 92 from Trumper, giving them a thumping innings victory. Their good form meant there were no changes for the fourth test at Old Trafford in Manchester. The English, meanwhile, made numerous selection changes in a bid to level the series. Barnes was unavailable, so Bill Lockwood returned to the side. Ranji had recovered from his leg injury and took the place of the underperforming Fryer. The final two changes were met with confusion by the public. Firstly, Jessup, despite his half-century in the previous test, was left out for debutante batsman Lionel Palaray from Somerset. Secondly, the final spot in the morning of the match came down to Hurst and the off-spinner from Sussex, 35-year-old Fred Tate. The English went with Tate, the conditions of the pitch expected to favour his style of bowling. However, Tate was a bunny with a bat and paw in the field, compared to the more accomplished Hurst. Rain had fallen on the morning of the match, and conditions were still overcast at the scheduled start time, but the umpires considered that the pitch was good enough for play. Batting would be best when the pitch was wettest, as once it started drying out in the sun, the spinners would become difficult to play. Luckily for Australia, Darling called correctly and had no hesitation in choosing to bat, confident that his outstanding opener, Victor Trumper, would be able to take full advantage. Victor Thomas Trumper was supposedly born on the 2nd of November 1877 in Sydney to parents Charles and Louise, although there are no clear records to confirm this. He grew up in the suburbs of Surrey Hills and Paddington, which surrounded Moore Park, home of the Sydney Cricket Ground. A schoolmate of Monty Nobles, who would use his influence to further Trumper's early career, he began playing for South Sydney, where he learned from Test player Sig Gregory. Trumper came to prominence early as he demonstrated excellence in batting, bowling and fielding, graduating to the New South Wales side as a 17-year-old in 1895. It wasn't until the season of 1898-99 where he really found his groove, where his performances that season seeing him out as a late addition to the 1899 touring side. His 135 in the Lord's Test that resulted in an Australian victory was of such a high standard that no lesser figure than W.G. Grace considered him to be a batsman of the highest quality, whilst his 300 in a day against Sussex showed his extraordinary run-scoring ability. He had his idiosyncrasies, such as using a glove on only his bottom hand, relying on skill to avoid getting hit on the top one. Trumper could bat in an orthodox fashion, but his ability on difficult pitches that set him apart from his peers. In an area of uncovered pitches, this allowed him to achieve some legendary performances, such as the one he was about to put on in this innings. Opening with Duff, Trumper set out to take full advantage of the conditions. Facing Rhodes and Jackson, Trumper pounced on anything that was loose, with his pull shot gaining him many runs. Duff was also scoring quickly and was matching pace with his partner, but even so he was in the shade of the mastery of Trumper's play. Despite good English fielding, the openers raced 70 in only 35 minutes of play, with the run split evenly between Trumper and Duff. McLaren made a double change, turning to Braun and Tate, but this had little impact as both bowled poorly. Tate in particular came in for punishment, with Trumper taking 13 off one over. The 100-run partnership took only an hour, and they continued to accelerate with both batsmen bringing up their half-centuries. When the score reached 129, McLaren finally turned to his fastest bowler in Lockwood. Lockwood immediately showed the folly of holding him back, inducing Duff to edge the slip, although Braun couldn't hold on to a difficult chance. 
Trumper then survived a close run-out opportunity before Lockwood finally got the first wicket, having Duff caught by keeper Lilly for 54. He'd shared a 135-run stand with Trumper that had only taken 80 minutes to compile. He was replaced by Hill, who continued the quick scoring. All eyes were on Trumper, though. He raced through the 80s and 90s and brought up his century just before lunch was taken, becoming the first batsman in history to score 100 before lunch on the first day of a test. The Australians had scored an astonishing 173 runs in the 100-minute opening session, setting themselves up for a big total. However, the sun had come out from behind the gloom, and as the batsmen returned from lunch, the wicket had begun to dry, becoming more difficult for batting. Rhodes returned to the bowling crease and immediately found a good length that troubled the batsman. He struck soon after the resumption, having Trumper caught behind for 104. Trumper walked off to loud applause, having batted for less than two hours and hit 14 exquisite boundaries. His dismissal sparked a collapse, as Rhodes claimed two more wickets in his first four overs after lunch. He dived forward to complete a low-down court and bowl from Noble, before getting Gregory to edge to the keeper. The Australians had lost three for ten since lunch, and were now four for 183, as the Australian captain came to the crease to join Hill. Darling decided the best way to deal with Rhodes was to hit him off his line. He started by hitting him for six out of the ground, followed by two drives for four. Hill also attacked the bowling and soon moved past his own 50. McLaren cycled through his spinners for a little effect before returning to Lockwood. Again, Lockwood was effective, causing Hill to miss hit a catch to Rhodes at mid-off, out for 65, becoming the first man to go past 1,500 test runs in the process. Hill and Darling had taken the Australians to 256, sharing a partnership of 73. From here, the English bowlers managed to get on top. Next man Hopkins fell for a duck without a run being added. Armstrong managed to hang around with Darling for a while, with Darling continuing to attack Rhodes, hitting the left arm spinner for another six out of the ground. Armstrong became Lockwood's fourth wicket at 288, and from there the Australian innings would come to a swift conclusion. Darling, having brought up his half century, was out to Rhodes for 51, whilst Lockwood claimed the final two wickets to end the Australian innings on 299. Lockwood finished with 6 for 48, whilst Rhodes claimed the other four, but went for over 100 runs in doing so. The other bowlers had little impact, with McLaren's captaincy decisions coming in for criticism. The Australians now had the advantage of bowling in the final hour on what was becoming an extremely difficult pitch. Debutante Palaray opened with a bell. Both started with some good shots in front of the wickets, but could only manage six runs apiece as they fell to the bowling of Saunders within a run of each other. McLaren, coming in at 2 for 13, could only manage the single before playing all around a ball from Trumbull to be bowled. Ranji hung around for a while with Tildesley, but struggled to score, eventually missing a ball from Trumbull that struck him on the pad, with the umpire acceding to the Australian's appeal. Tildesley looked the best equipped batsman to handle the conditions, striking three boundaries and making his way to 22 before he was caught at third man off Saunders. This left the English at 5 for 44. Luckily for them, Jackson and Braun combined to take the stumps without further loss. The total had reached 70, still trailing by 229, with half their side dismissed. 25,000 people streamed into the ground on a fine day too. The Australians looked to press their advantage. England still required 80 to avoid the follow-on, as Jackson and Braun commenced on the still difficult pitch. Noble and Trumbull started for the Australians and found a good length, but the batsmen were up to the challenge, scoring in a steady fashion. Jackson in particular was strong through the leg side, and this eventually led to Noble's replacement by Saunders. The 100 came up before the first chance was given, with Saunders dropping a difficult court and bowled off Jackson when he was on 41. He carried on, bringing up his 50 as Darling began to cycle through his bowlers looking for a breakthrough. The score moved past 150, and the local fans cheered the saving of the follow-on target. Braund also moved past his half-century. The English were seemingly going to go through the opening session without losing a wicket, before Braund edged the ball onto his stumps off Noble to be out for 65. 
He'd shared a 141-run partnership with Jackson and had taken the English on to 6 for 185 at lunch. After lunch, the main focus was if Jackson would be able to reach his century. He was finding little support at the other end, with Lily out for 7 just as the score passed 200, also bowled by Noble. Locke would replace him and also made his way to 7. At this point, Jackson played a ball to Duffett Point, who misfielded. Jackson, who was in the 90s at this point, set off for a run, but confusion reigned between himself and Lockwood. Eventually, Lockwood sacrificed himself to keep Jackson's chance of the century alive and was run out. This was well appreciated by the crowd and paid off soon after as Jackson brought up his century, his third in tests. When Rhodes was caught and bowled for five, Jackson attempted to shield last man Tate from the strike. Both batsmen were dropped as the final wicket put on 27, taking the English score to 262. Jackson was the last man out, caught in the deep off Trumbull. He had made an outstanding 128 runs with 16 boundaries, batting on a difficult wicket and taking his side within 37 runs of the Australian total. Trumbull with four wickets and Saunders with three were the best performed of the Australian bowlers. The English bowlers didn't let the efforts of Jackson go to waste. McLaren didn't make the same mistake as in the first innings and began with Lockwood. The fast bowler caused chaos, dismissing Trumper in his second over for four before Hill and Duff were both bowled in his third. This left the Australians at three for ten. Darling and Gregory came together to resurrect the innings. They had moved the score onto 16 when Darling hit a high ball off Braun straight to deep square leg. Tate positioned himself under the ball, but dropped the simple chance. The batsmen took advantage, playing the bowling judiciously from then on and slowly building the lead. Both batsmen found a couple of boundaries, leading to Rhodes coming into the attack. He nearly got Gregory's wicket, but the ball fell just short of slip. The partnership moved to a valuable 50, with Tate now getting a turn at the bowling crease. He managed to get the breakthrough, with a ball keeping low and striking Gregory on the pad, with the umpire accepting the appeal. Gregory made 24 out of a 54-run partnership with his captain, taking the Australian lead past 100. From here, though, the Australian resistance collapsed. Noble joined Darling and the two added another 10 runs before Darling was out for 37 to an excellent catch by Palare, running back at mid-off off-roads. Lockwood then returned to the bowling crease and claimed Hopkins and Noble within a run of each other. When Rhodes bowled Armstrong for two, the Australians were 8 for 79, a lead of only 116. Kelly and Trumbull managed to see out the rest of the day and took the score to 85, but England ended the day well on top of the game. However, rain overnight once again changed the complexion of the pitch. The ground was so wet the play was delayed until after midday. When it began, Trumbull was out in the second over LBW to Tate without addition to the overnight score, although there was some dispute as to whether the ball was going on to hit the stumps. Only another run was added before last man Saunders was caught in the outfield off Rhodes, ending the innings on 86. Lockwood was the star for the English, adding five wickets to the six he took in the first innings. The target to level the series was 124, but could have been much smaller had Tate completed the catch off Darling when he was on single figures. Despite the conditions, the English started their innings confidently. McLaren opened with Palaray, and the two moved the score on with some clever running. Palaray was lucky to survive when a ball from Noble just missed the off stump and then hit a ball close to short leg. But other than that, the two batsmen managed to make it to lunch without loss on 36, requiring a further 88 for victory. After lunch, McLaren struck Trumbull to the boundary in the first over. A couple of overs later, Saunders made the first breakthrough, spinning one past Palaray's bat to bowl him for 17, with the first wicket falling at 44. Despite this opening, new batsman Tildesley started well, hitting a cut for four off Trumbull and taking the score past 50. More boundaries from the two batsmen took the English past the halfway mark towards the target, although McLaren was lucky to survive two plays and misses from Saunders. Eventually, though, Tildesley edged one to slip off Saunders and was out for 16. Four runs later, McLaren, who had batted for over an hour in making 35, 
was caught at long on off Trumbull. This gave Trumbull his 100th wicket in Test cricket, the third Australian to do so after Turner and Giffen. The English were now 3 for 72 as Ranji and Abel took up the responsibility. The clouds were closing in though and rain could have come at any moment. Abel's play was guided by this, seemingly under instruction to hit out to achieve the target quickly. Twice he cleared Duff's head at long on to score boundaries and quickly took the English score into the 90s. At the other end, Ranji was hanging in but seemingly playing without confidence. He tried to cover his stumps with his pads to play Trumbull. This brought danger, and once he was struck in front, the umpire had little hesitation in giving him out LBW. He became the fourth wicket to fall, with a score on 92. The English had six wickets in hand, with only 32 runs required. From here, though, the pressure of chasing started to get to the English. This was compounded by the tight bowling from Trumbull and Saunders, who were giving little away, whilst they were well backed up by superb fielding. Abel fell in five runs later for 21 when he was bowled by Trumbull attempting a big drive. Jackson took the score past 100 but couldn't repeat his heroics from the first innings and was caught at mid-off off Saunders. In the next over from Trumbull, as the rain began to fall, he had Braun brilliantly stumped by Kelly before bowling Lockwood for a duck. The English were now 8 down for 109, still requiring 15. Lily and Rhodes combined, with Rhodes striking a boundary off Saunders. Soon after, Lily should have been run out, but the throw from Hill was wild. This didn't cost the Australians, as Lily was out in the same over, caught suburbly by Hill at square leg off Trumbull, giving you 6 for the innings and 10 for the match. The English were now 9 for 116. The rain then came down more heavily, driving the players from the field. There were fears that the match would be denied an exciting conclusion it deserved. However, after 45 minutes, the rain subsided enough that play could resume. As the batsman had crossed on Lily's wicket, which was the last ball of the over, number 11 Tate would be on strike facing Saunders with eight runs required for the victory. A noted bunny, Tate was lucky enough to move inside the first ball he faced, sending it to the fine leg boundary to reduce the target to four. He played the next two balls without incident. On the fourth, he attempted a big drive to win the game, but missed and was bowled, giving the Australians victory by three runs. This was the closest result by runs to this point in Test cricket, beating the famous Ashes Test from 1882, and will remain that way until 1993, when the West Indies defeated Australia by one run in Adelaide. Despite many English players not contributing, blame for the defeat landed on the shoulders of Fred Tate. Not only was his selection over the better batsman and fielder Hurst criticised, but he came in for particular vitriol due to his drop chance of Darling and his inability to hit the winning runs. Following the match, Tate was in tears, but told teammate Len Braund, I have got a boy at home who will put it all right for me. The boy, seven-year-old Maurice, would go on to take over 150 test wickets for England in the 20s and 30s and be a key figure in two Ashes victories, fulfilling his father's prophecy. This test marked the end of Ranjitsenji's test career. His poor form had been caused in part due to financial difficulties weighing on his mind. These were so great that he preemptively withdrew from the fifth test, although he would attend as a spectator. He would return to India in 1904 to deal with domestic responsibilities, eventually becoming the Maharaja Jam Saheb of Nawanaga, although he did return to county cricket in 1908 and 1912, scoring a thousand runs each time. His final return in 1920 was cruelled by the loss of an eye in a shooting accident. He had a huge impact on the way cricket was played, with his perfection of the leg glance being his major contribution to cricketing style. During the six years of his test career, no English player who featured in more than two tests averaged higher than his 44.95, making 989 runs in 15 tests with 200s. He passed away at age 60 in 1933, with the trophy for the major domestic cricket competition in India, the Ranji Trophy, being named after him in 1935. Following the fourth test, the Australians had four matches in the lead-up to the fifth and final test at the Oval in August. 
The first two of these against Essex and Sussex were draws, despite some excellent batting performances. Trumper scored a centuries in each innings against Essex, whilst against Sussex Noble, who scored his career-high first-class score of 284, and Armstrong, who scored 172 not out, put on 428 for the sixth wicket, a record for that wicket that would stand until 1933. Wins against Glamorgan and Hampshire followed, featuring hundreds by Noble and Darling, while seven wickets by Armstrong dominated the win over Glamorgan. Unsurprisingly, given their good form, the Australians made no changes. The English made three. The unfortunate Tate was replaced by Hurst, whilst Hayward came in for the first time in this series, replacing Ranji. The final change was the return of Jessup, in place of Abel. Darling was successful at a toss and chose to bat. Despite the English already having lost the series, there was still great enthusiasm for the locals for the match, with 20,000 turning up for day one. Despite some rain in the lead-up, the pitch was still a good one for batting as Trumper and Duff made their way to the middle. As in the previous test, they looked to score quickly, although they weren't quite at the same rate as they had done at Old Trafford. Still, 45 runs came up in the first half an hour with a little fret from the bowling of Lockwood or Rhodes. At this point, McLaren brought on the left-arm mediums of Hurst. He had an immediate impact, having Duff caught behind for 23, an excellent catch that Lilly took one-handed down the leg side. With the opening partnership having put on 47, Hill joined Trumper. Never looking comfortable, Hill managed to make his way to 11 when he was bowled by Hurst. Hurst then had Darling edging behind for three. When Hurst claimed his fourth wicket, bowling Trumper for 42, the Australians had dropped to four for 82. He was still causing troubles for the new batsmen, Noble and Gregory, but the two managed to get through to lunch without further loss at four for 107. The scoring rate had slowed considerably either side of lunch. The pressure eventually got to Gregory, who was clean bowled by Hurst for 23, giving him his fifth wicket. This brought Armstrong to the crease to join Noble. Having shared that record partnership with Armstrong, the two combined well, raising the scoring rate considerably. Noble brought up his 50, filled with attractive stroke play. Just when the two looked like taking the game away from the English, they were both out within a run of each other. Armstrong bowled for 17, and Noble caught and bowled for 52, with Jackson claiming both wickets. At 7 for 175, the Australians looked to be throwing away the advantage from batting on a placid wicket. The new batsmen, Hopkins and Trumbull, both survived close calls. Hopkins was given not out LBW despite most in the crowd thinking he was adjacent, whilst Lily dropped Trumbull off Jackson. These missed opportunities cost the English dearly. The two batsmen set about to grind down the English bowling. After their earlier mishaps, they gave no chances. With Rhodes unable to get much turn, and the pace of Lockwood neutered by the slowness of the pitch, the batsmen were able to build a partnership that increased to 81 before the breakthrough was finally made when Hopkins was caught off Lockwood having compiled 40. This brought Kelly to the crease. After a slow start, he began to hit out, looking to take advantage of the tired bowlers. At the other end, Trumbull moved past 50, his fourth such score in tests. Eventually, Kelly, having compiled a quick 39, was caught by Rhodes off Braund. When Saunders was trapped LBW for a duck in the same over, the Australian innings ended on 324, with Trumbull not out 64. Hurst was the pick of the bowls with 5 for 77, as the day ended with the completion of the Australian's innings. Any hope the English getting good padding conditions was dashed when heavy rain fell overnight. As such, the bowls were in the ascendant as day two began. The openers, McLaren and Palaray, did manage to survive for a time against the bowling of Saunders and Trouble, putting on 31 before Palaray was caught for 10 off Trumbull. Soon after, McLaren also fell, bowled by Trumbull for 20. Tilsley then played some enterprising cricket with some bright hitting, but the other end Hayward was struggling. He spent 20 minutes without scoring before being bowled by Trumbull. Jackson then fell for two, becoming Saunders' first victim, and then without addition, Tildesley, who had compiled 33, became Trumbull's fourth wicket. The score was now 5 for 67. 
Jessup attempted a hit in his usual style and managed to make it to 13 before being bowled by Trumbull. This left the English at 6 for 83 and in danger of having to follow on. However, from here the English found some steel, mainly in the form of Hurst. He had already showed the folly of leaving him out in the previous test with the ball and now did so with the bat. He played aggressive cricket, pulling Saunders confidently, whilst also depositing Trumbull into the grandstand for five. He found a willing accomplice in Braund, who hung around stoically. Hurst made 43 at a run a minute before he was dismissed, caught and bowled by Trumbull. Lockwood joined Braund at 7 for 137, and the two managed to avoid the follow-on mark. When Lockwood departed for 25 at 179, the end came quickly, with the final two wickets only adding another four. Trumbull was the star for the Australians, taking 8 for 65, the second Australian to take eight wickets in the innings after Albert Trott. The English did not have to follow on, but still try by a substantial 141 as the Australian innings commenced. With the wicket being in the bowler's favour though, the English were able to make inroads in the Australian second innings. Although Duff was badly missed by Hurst in the first over off roads, the second saw the first breakthrough. Trumper hit a ball towards Jessup and set off for a run, but was sent back by his partner. Slipping on the wet pitch, he was caught short of his ground and run out for two. Duff followed soon after, bowled by the pace of Lockwood. The Australians were now two for nine as Hill and Darling combined. Darling started well, striking the ball fluently, but before the Australian captain could do too much damage, he was caught in the slips by his counterpart off Lockwood for 15. Noble joined Hill and the two struggled to get on top of the bowling, scoring very slowly. They put on 40 runs in over an hour's batting before Noble padded up to a ball from Braund, only for it to bounce off his pads and bowl in for 13. Four runs later, Hill's hour and a half of the crease ended when he was spectacularly caught one-handed at slip by McLaren off Hurst. He'd made 34, but now the Australians were five down for 75. At one end, Armstrong looked reasonably comfortable, but he continually lost partners at the other, with Gregory, Hopkins and Saunders all falling for single-figure scores. Saunders' wickets brought about the end of the day, with Australians on 8 for 114, a lead of 255. England was still in with a chance, but only slight one according to most expert watchers. Although there was no rain for the final day, heavy dew meant the pitch didn't dry out as expected. This meant the pitch was still a challenge for the batsmen. The Australian innings ended quickly. Armstrong was bowled without adding to his overnight score of 21 before Kelly was last out LBW. Lockwood claimed the final wickets to finish with five for the innings. The Australians could only manage 121, setting the English a target of 263 to win the match. The English could not have had a worse possible start. Saunders ripped through the first three batsmen, bowling McLaren, Palaray and Tildesley with only 10 runs on the board. Hayward and Jackson combined for a time. Hayward was missed by Gregory at short leg, which seemed a bad let off as the two looked to resurrect the chase. However, at 31, Hayward was caught behind off Saunders for seven. Next man Braun could only manage two before becoming the fifth wicket to fall, caught behind off Trumbull. Half the English side had been dismissed with only 48 runs on the board, with the 215 required for victory seeming a bridge too far. New man Jessup, who was often referred to as the Croucher due to his unusual batting stance, played in his typical style, moving quickly to 22. He was missed twice though, with a stumping chance being missed before Trumper dropped him in the outfield. The English went to lunch at 5 for 87, with Jackson on 39. Following lunch, Jackson, who had looked the most comfortable before the break, was now struggling, edging a ball just short of Armstrong at slip. Jessup, however, started to play the innings of his life. He was particularly harsh on the bowling of Saunders, who was struggling with his length. He took four consecutive boundaries in a 17 run over off the Australian left armour, quickly taking the score past 100. He moved past his 50 at better than a run a minute, although he lost Jackson at the other end, caught and bowled by Trumbull for 49. He was replaced by Hurst at 6 for 157. 
Many thought Hirsch could have been dismissed LBW to Trumbull almost immediately, but the umpire refused to give him out. The loss of the wicket didn't slow Jessup down at all, striking Trumbull twice to the pavilion. His assault on the Australians was such that he was taking the match away from them single-handedly. His 100 came up with a typical boundary, his first in Test cricket. However, the introduction of Armstrong's leg brace had caused him issues, such that he was dismissed by a tame shot to short leg. His 104 had been made with 17 boundaries and 1-5. More impressively, he had only been at the crease for 77 minutes and faced 76 balls. This was the fastest test century by both balls and minutes to this time, and remained so until Jack Gregory's effort against South Africa in 1921. To this day, it is still the fastest test century by an Englishman. Despite Jessup's incredible effort, when he departed, the English still required 76 runs to win, with only three wickets in hand. The match was still Australia's to lose. However, Hurst took up the responsibility that Jessup had left behind. He handled Armstrong comfortably and quickly took the English score past 200. He dominated the partnership with Lockwood, who could only add two himself before he was trapped LBW by Trumbull. Lilly joined Hurst with a score at 8 for 214, still requiring 49 for victory. Lilly provided Hurst with strong support, adding 16 in a partnership of 34 to take the English to within 15 of victory before he was caught by Darling off Trumbull. This brought the last man Rose in to join his Yorkshire teammate Hurst. Despite being a number 11, Rose was quietly confident, telling his partner, don't worry, we'll get them in singles. He lived up to this promise, holding out the bowling of Trumbull and Saunders and knocking it around, finding the gaps to slowly bring the target down. There was only one chance, a difficult catch to Armstrong at slip which was dropped when he could only get one hand to the ball. Hurst, who brought up his 50 soon after the arrival of Rhodes, followed his partner's advice. The runs required continued to fall until only two were required. Rhodes then sent a ball between Trumbull and mid-on for a double, bringing up the win by one wicket, to scenes of wild celebration from the home crowd. Hurst ended up 58 not out, finishing the job that Jessup had started. This was the first occasion of a one-wicket victory in Test cricket, a result that has only happened in a further 14 matches at the time of publication. Never had observers seen such two close matches in sequence, although the English victory was soured somewhat by having already lost the series. For the Australians, Trumbull ended with 12 wickets for the match, but Darling was criticised for not making use of his bowling stocks, with Noble considered to be underbowled, especially when Saunders was copying punishment for Jessup. The Test loss was the second match the Australians had lost on their entire tour and would be the last one they would receive, despite having a further 10 matches to complete. They went on a six-match winning streak, including three by an innings. Trumbull starred during these matches, making up for lost time from the beginning of the tour, taking three 10-wicket matches, including one nine- and two eight-wicket innings. Trumper added two centuries to his already impressive tally during this time. Overall, the Australians took 23 victories from their 39 matches, with only the two losses leading to many calling them the best side to ever visit England. Their test victory was also their fourth consecutive series win over the English, making the most dominant period by an Australian side to this stage in test history. Amongst those final 10 games include a match against Middlesex at Lords. After the host compiled 204, the Australians opened with Kelly and Hopkins. Kelly faced up to the leg spin of Bernard Buzinque. In the third over, Kelly played back to a ball that pitched outside off stump. Kelly aimed to leave, considered pretty safe as the ball was expected to turn away from the stumps. However, once the ball landed, it spun back, collecting Kelly's off stump and dismissing him for a duck. Kelly returned to the pavilion very puzzled as the ball had been delivered with a leg break action, although all his teammates did was laugh at his description of a bloke out there bowling leg breaks that turn in from the off. This was the first recorded dismissal caused by a new delivery. Originally known as the Bosey after its creator, it became more commonly referred to as the Googly, or the Wrongen, and will be used to great effect by Bozenque on the next tour of Australia, becoming a staple weapon of leg spinners around the world. 
Across the tour, no one stood above Trumper for the accomplishments he made. As stated by former cricketer Harry Eltham, from start to finish of the season, on every sort of wicket, against every sort of bowling, Trumper entranced the eye, inspired his side, demoralised his enemies, and made runs getting appear the easiest thing in the world. He set new records for run scoring by visiting batsmen, scoring 2,570 runs at 48.49 with 11 centuries. Whilst the dominance of Trumper overshadowed all others, many of the Australians also had successful tours with the bat, with Armstrong, Darling, Duff, Hill, Noble and Hopkins all scoring over 1,000 runs. Trumper led the wicket-taking despite missing the early matches with 137 wickets, including 13 five-wicket innings and seven ten-wicket matches. He was well supported by Saunders, who claimed 123 wickets, whilst Noble took 93. The 1902 series has gone down as one of the greatest of all time, with its final two neighbouring matches passing into folklore, particularly the efforts of Trumper and Jessup. The Australian's dominance was built upon the brilliance of its players and the discipline they were kept to by their captain, Darling. It would take a mighty effort for the English to upset the strength that the Australians had developed. Before the English would get a chance of revenge, though, the Australians were about to embark on a new frontier, with their first tour of South Africa to take place on their way home from England, opening up a new rivalry that remained strong up to the present day. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.